0: It's August 4th, 1693, and another remarkable event is about
1: to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. So it was on this day that a Benedictine monk, whose name is now on one of the most highly regarded champagnes in the world, Dom Perignon, sampled his first ever sparkling and cried out to his fellow monks, Brothers, come quickly. I am tasting the stars. Now, this whole story needs a heavy dose of like caveating and unpacking because pretty much everyone agrees now that well the man and the drink are closely intertwined this probably didn't happen and it probably didn't happen on this particular date so it's kind of developed this apocryphal myth that exists as a halo over the whole business of the construction of champagne but he definitely was a monk, he definitely was involved in creating champagne and he definitely was living in the, the region doing fun stuff with bubbles.
2: For one thing he certainly wouldn't have been excited about tasting a sparkling wine because at the time if your wine ended up going sparkling that was seen as a major fault not least mm. because they had much thinner glass in those days and most of the time it would make the bottle explode he dedicated his whole life to refining the technique of producing the wines that we now know as champagne but ironically the reason he devoted himself to that was to try and reduce the chances of getting these fizzy bottles
3: Champagne is such an ever-present thing in our lives now. I don't mean that we live
1: such a existence. I don't know drinking. what you're
3: all drinking while you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> it's our only fluid. I just mean, when you attend a celebration, it is the default, that it seems hard to imagine that champagne was ever invented at all. You know, it's a bit like mm. trying to attribute the discovery of barbecue or orange juice or something. It just seems like... <laughs> Surely people always knew that you could ferment wine a bit more and make it fizzy. But apparently not. I mean, it's quite recent, isn't it? Like whoever invented it, it was like after Shakespeare was dead.
1: I mean, wine from the region of Champagne has been popular for absolutely ages, and they've been growing it since about the fifth century. The first viticulture was begun there by the Romans. But as Rebecca is saying, they were trying to get this imperfection out of the wine, the business of having bubbles in the bottle, because it turned them into these sort of explosive time bombs. And so particularly Dom Perignon, you know, his interest was more in kind of how to prune vines successfully and how to you know, get the best out of the grape in ways to reduce the chance of the grapes being bruised and broken and- I mean he's doing his best Rebecca but
3: I always feel when people talk about the origin and history of any kind of alcohol like it's so much less fun than drinking it do you know what I mean this is why I don't do wine tastings I've been a few times to wine tastings and I always think it's going to be fun And then you're like an hour into the first, you've had like a sip, you've had a thimble of wine. And someone's gone into (laughs) grapes and vineyards and pressing. And I'm just like, there's a reason I don't work in that industry.
2: Well, if you'd gone to a wine tasting in Dom Perignon's time and you were sampling champagne, Ollie, you probably would be quite disappointed because in this time period, the wines made in the champagne region were still, for the most part, unless they had this defect. And they were pinkish in colour because of the Pinot Noir grapes. One thing that Dom Perignon did was he, he basically said, no more trampling, which sounds quite like a bit of a sanitary progressive for 1693 Hmm. he brought around this idea of doing multiple pressings so your first pressing was like so light and gentle that the skin wouldn't even be broken and wouldn't go into the liquid so you could make white colored wine from red grapes and that was like the end goal and the reason that that for the carbonation was that it was cooler in champagne than in lots of other wine growing regions so when the weather got cold the wine would stop fermenting And then when it warmed up again, it would ferment, but it was already in the bottles. So then you'd get this carbonation. And yeah, that was seen as something they wanted to get rid of.
1: And I think even in listening to that bit of the story, I agree with you, Ollie, that it does get sort of boring and technical, particularly
2: oh, thanks, when you start to... <laughs> Jesus Christ!
1: You did your very best with
3: it, and, and you actually did a much better job than I was doing. But Can we go back to me mansplaining the
1: ingredients? Of ours, <laughs> no, 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 but I, but, I, I think that <laughs> but I think that the point that you're making about why, almost, why you need a bit of a sexy story to hang around the invention of champagne, that's kind of like it's what we're arriving at here that anytime you do try to talk about the centuries of progress and everything that went into it it does get a bit kind of dull but actually you know if you could create this sort of fanciful moment where a particular guy had this sort of you know quite poetic experience of drinking this lovely lovely stuff then yeah that, that captures the imagination
3: okay so let's briefly give the counter narrative which is that there are some Spanish dudes who were also into this at the time and there was an English guy called Christopher Merritt who documented in 1662, so a couple of decades before this, that, quote, wine coopers of recent times use vast quantities of sugar and molasses to all sorts of wines to make them drink brisk and sparkling and to give them spirit. And that is now believed to be the first time anyone had applied the word sparkling to wine, and it was an Englishman. It wasn't Dom Perignon. But what I find more interesting is why it was Dom Perignon that's the story that took off. And there's a whole book about this by a historian called Joan Dijon, which is all about how effectively Louis XIV created the idea of French luxury that we're still buying now. Not just champagne, Mm -hmm. but also perfume and cheese and all the things that we think of as posh are basically Louis XIV's tastes. And it's a bit like we were talking about last week with Elizabeth I being the ultimate influencer on tobacco. It doesn't matter who tried it before Elizabeth I did. She did, and then everyone Mm -hmm. wanted it in English high society. Louis XIV liked champagne, just like he liked gold leaf and diamonds and expensive hairdos. And as a result, so did Posh French Society. And as a result, the whole world still thinks, because we haven't really moved on from his tastes, <laughs> still thinks of <laughs> it as a luxury tipple.
2: Well, I, I can't help but think that that may be the reason that the British embraced the sparkling champagne in the first place, that we didn't realise that it was basically the unwanted bottles. And the French were probably just, you know, raking it in thinking, yeah, ship them all off <laughs> to the UK. But the, obviously, the problem was that because of this exploding bottle issue, until they developed stronger glass, which is like in the mid 19th century, they couldn't really mass produce fizzy champagne. So it did remain the preserve of an elite handful of early adopters until then.
1: And it was in England, as you say, that it was particularly being driven in taste terms. Some scholars think that that was connected to the popularity of beer in England and because people are already were into kind of carbonated fizzy beverages mm. they could get into a fizzy version of wine and it was particularly popular in the English court but I think that yeah the French did sense this opportunity and they were like okay well let's try to really manufacture this stuff big time.
3: If people in England were really drinking champagne at all because fraudsters got into this act pretty quickly didn't they to create fake champagne because people hadn't tasted it. You know, it's like a drug dealer now cutting up ketamine and mixing it with talcum powder or whatever they do. You know, that you get the waiter to pour the champagne from a height and it would come out a bit bubblier. <laughs> and it wasn't really champagne at all. And if you shook it, you know, before popping the cork, then that would make it all froth out as well, even some old bottle of wine.
2: Yeah, and that actually caused a lot of problems for the producers in champagne because there weren't really a lot of rules and regulations around stuff like, you know, trademarks or products of controlled origin, that kind of thing mm. in those days. And then it was compounded by champagne was part of the western front in world war one so loads of vineyards Mm. are basically just bombed into oblivion but that actually proved to be the turnaround because that's when the french government started passing all these strict laws to protect the champagnes of trademark which gradually you know helped the industry to recover because for them people were drinking like you know fizzy rhubarb juice
3: by the way i have seen blogs saying you can put white wine in a soda stream if you want a budget version. <laughs> uh, apparently it works. The person who was writing about it, she said the best way to do it the first time you do it is do it in the bathroom just in case it will go terribly wrong.
1: Are they the same blogs that say that you can cut your ketamine with talcum powder for, <laughs> to make it go further? <laughs> but after the Second World War, it's it's amazing how champagne has really come to be that thing that you're talking about, Ollie, the drink of celebration. After 1950, sales of champagne have quadrupled around the world to a stage that now they're producing 200 million bottles of champagne and selling them worldwide every year. It's an astonishing success story.
2: I was actually lucky enough to go on a press trip to Épernay, the French town that's kind of the epicentre of the champagne industry. And they were telling us that the big markets now are Russia, Brazil, China, mm. and they've basically brought in new things like they had they were showing us like this Moet ice that's meant to be drunk in in warmer climates like for instance brazil or india and you are meant to put ice in it so it is Mm. continuing to evolve but it's still this icon of privilege i mean that's the weird thing about it is that it has a whole cultural resonance that's completely separate from the fact that it is a sparkling wine Mm. you know we talk about champagne socialists apparently Mm. there was a craze in victorian times for men to shine their shoes with champagne that was started by the famous Mm. dandy beau brummel
1: Just one weird little factoid. Apparently, the amount of pressure in a champagne bottle uh, is around three times the amount of pressure in your average car tyre. And it's because of this that there's a really staggering amount of uh, champagne bottle-related injuries and deaths. Apparently, 24 people die every year from champagne-related accidents, um, mostly at weddings. So stand back. Seriously stand back when people are opening the champagne at the next wedding. But is that the call, going into something? someone's vein or something <laughs> straight into their vein it must be about you know hitting aunt Maud in the head and then yeah. she falls over on the sharp bit of the table and you know <laughs> the end so but yeah 24 people every year apparently die in, in such happy yet sad circumstances well that is sobering isn't it
3: Do you carry on with the event? I don't know what you do if someone dies of a (laughs) champagne-related incident. Yeah, good question. I think you (laughs) probably do, don't you? I mean, if not, if it's the bride. Tomorrow.
2: The election of FDR is so ruinous that it literally kills Daddy Warbucks.
3: Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.